Good morning, church. I'd like to ask you today to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, the second chapter. And as you're turning there, I'd like to just um, sort of get us to think through this, uh, this next portion of Scripture together. Um, I think it's probably um, for, for people who are doing a, a yearly read-through-the-Bible plan, um, the lists of names that we come across normally cause one of two things. One, they, they cause us to just quit. Or maybe they provide an opportunity for us to fast forward and move quickly to the next chapter. Well, today we're not going to do either of those things. We're actually going to take into consideration um, this, uh, this text of Scripture that is essentially a, a long list of names. Um, lists of names are not um, foreign to us. It's not uncommon for us to consider lists of names. Um, we're just a couple months removed from time where people gather in groups of thousands to hear hundreds of names read off. It's called graduation ceremonies, right? We, we've set through those, uh, I'm sure, more than we'd like to remember. Um, but there's other lists of names as well. We have lists of names uh, that, are, that are etched in stone that we call war memorials. Uh, we have lists of names uh, that are dedicated to honoring excellence in particular sports and fields. These are called um, Hall of Fame rosters, right? Um, even lists of names at restaurants sometimes can be a really cool thing when you show up and find your name on the list for a, for a seat, right? Um, and and the, the popularity, too, of, of websites such as MyHeritage.com or Ancestry.com or FindAGrave.com. How many of you have seen the website FindAGrave.com? Uh, yeah, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, uh, look up FindAGrave.com with all the different pictures of many times your own family. You can see their uh, images of their grave locations and uh, dates of, of death and birth and that sort of thing. Um, the, uh, the, the New American Commentary, with an article by uh, Mervyn Brenham, um, says this about list. Finding one's name on a list is frequently satisfying and encouraging. It gives assurance that arrangements have been made, that one is expected, valued, and privileged. Such was surely the case with these numbered here, that would be in Ezra chapter 2, among the people of God, was welcoming back to the land of promise, a land that represented God's commitment to redeem the earth from sin and judgment and to establish a divine and eternal kingdom of righteousness. So as we look at the second chapter of Ezra today, I, I, would, I would love to accomplish a couple of things. Um, first of all, I'd like to elevate our understanding and appreciation for the list of names that God places within his word. Um, but also, I would like for us to um, use this as a way of understanding uh, that, that our God is a very particular God. He's a very specific God. He's a God that saves specific individuals. He's a personal God. And I think we can see all of that in, in our text today. So um, let's, let's jump into this. Um, first of all, I think it's important for us to consider why these lists of names were so important to the Old Covenant people of God. Why were they important to the Old Covenant people? A couple of reasons, I think, come to mind. First of all, the promises and blessings of God were to be channeled through the descendants of Abraham. Um, we're going to get to the text, I promise, but I want to lay this out a little bit for us before we get into Ezra chapter 2. Turn with me, um, keep your finger on Ezra 2, and, and let's just really quickly take a look at Genesis 12. Genesis 12. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hold our finger there in Ezra, but we're going to run around a little bit in Scripture before we get there. 
I want to make sure that we've got a, um, a cohesive uh, sort of uh, idea of, of what we're reading when we get to Ezra 2. In Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So one reason that the, the, that the list of names in, in the Bible are important to the old covenant people of God is that it was through the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham, that God would make himself known to the world. Part of God's revelation of himself to man is seen in the written word of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible or what we would call the Old Testament. The Jews were graciously given the law and the prophets and the writings of God. The Apostle Paul, in an answer to his own rhetorical question, what advantage is there in being a Jew, writes this in Romans 3, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So lists of names are important to the Old Covenant people of God because they were chosen to receive God's self-revelation and through that to be a blessing to the entire world. Secondly, it was through the descendants of Abraham that God chose to fulfill his promise in the Garden of Eden. What was that promise? That promise was that there would be a seed or an offspring of the woman who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent and provide redemption for mankind. We read about that in Genesis 3. This is what theologians often call the proto-evangelium or the original gospel statement which carried a promise of a redeemer. You'll remember uh, that in the curse on the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see those two reasons that for the people, the old covenant people of God, uh, the, the, the fact was these lists were very, very important because they pointed to the provision of God, the perfect plan of God, and the revelation of God to us. Well, for all the uncertainty, I'm sorry, for all the certainty that this would have provided to the original readers, this list of names in Ezra 2 to us actually provides very little clarity. Outside of Ezra and Nehemiah, the vast majority of these names are never mentioned again in Scripture. They're lost to history. So we might struggle to find much use for this passage today, although it was suggested. We've, we've talked about the, the baby shower on the, on the 12th for all for the three, the three L's. Well, it was suggested that this list might make a good source um, of new baby names. Okay, So as we're reading through this here in just a minute, um, you, you ladies who are with child, be thinking about what it might be like someday to have a little Adonikum running around. Or, or maybe a little asthma veth. I, I've never met an asthma veth, but we could, we could start that here at North Hills if we want to tap into this beautiful source of names. Um, that, that's, that's kind of a humorous thing, I think, but, but it is important for us to take just a second before we read the text and ask ourselves the question, why is this text relevant to me today? Um, why don't we just skip past it and move more quickly through Ezra? Well, the first and, and simplest and I think most profound reason that we take this passage seriously is that it is included in the inspired Word of God, and it's just that simple. People today have a tendency to shy away from difficult parts of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. 
Some passages in the Old Testament are embarrassing to 21st century readers because they offend our modern sensibilities. Other passages are just plain difficult, and it takes a lot of diligent study to understand them. Others still prove uninteresting to us because it's difficult to read ourselves into the text, and that's what we tend to want to do with Scripture. We like to see ourselves, place ourselves into the context of Scripture. These types of difficulties have actually led one well-known pastor to recommend that we simply unhitch from the Old Testament. Well, today we're going to back up and hook to the Old Testament in a big way as we, as we examine this passage in uh, Ezra chapter 2. Remember, again, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture, not just the fun parts, not just the easy parts, not just the parts that don't include long lists of names, but all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So today when we read our text, it is the voice of God speaking to us through his inerrant and inspired word. Secondly, um, I think it's important for us just to remember that God reveals himself to us in every page of his inspired word. So not only is this a, uh, a written version of the word of God, but God shows us himself in his written word. So we're going we're gonna to consider that in more detail as we work through this today. Well, uh, the, one, the one admonition that I'd like to leave you with in this introduction is this. Please don't let the difficulties of this text divert our gaze from the beauty of God flowing through his word. Don't allow the challenges of the application of Ezra 2 and the difficulties in handling this get in the way of our appreciation of the fact that God has spoken and he has revealed himself in Scripture. Let us pray. God, it is, it is our prayer this morning that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. God, help us to see the significance of this passage of Scripture. Help us to recognize that Ezra 2 is just as inspired as John 3.16. And Lord, you have put it there for a reason and for a purpose. And God, give us the, uh, the focus of mind, the clarity in our hearts and minds to, to consider your word today and to allow you to speak through that to us that you may reveal aspects of your character and encourage us in your revelation to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so it's beginning, as we begin now to break down this text in Ezra chapter 2, um, normally uh, we take two or three verses at a time and we read them and then we go back and we work through them. Well, today we're not going to do two or three verses. We are going to do 58 verses in one day. Now, some of you are amazed. I, I, I think it would normally take us two months to get through 58 verses in a normal teaching series here at North Hills. But today, we're going to throw this thing in high gear, and we're going to take big chunks of Scripture. Um, as, as we do that, uh, we're, we're going to start with, with just verse 1, and then we're going to take a bigger section and a bigger section. So I'm not going to read all the way through, um, but we'll take this thing chunk by chunk, section by section. So beginning in Ezra 2, verse 1, let us read together. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken away into exile to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. Now as I've, as I've studied this passage this week, um, I've kind of been thinking of this like a genealogy. Um, in fact, I think I might have even been calling it a genealogy. 
But technically, a genealogy is a list of names that traces ancestry through a particular line. Um, two, two great examples of that would be the genealogies of Christ in, uh, in both Luke and Matthew. Um, this, this text is not technically a genealogy in so much as it is a list of people, and these people are listed and established according to some basic criteria. The first part of this list is organized according to uh, the people's association with various patriarchal heads, in other words, family groups. The second part, uh, beginning in verse 20, is organized with people according to their geographic areas or towns mostly within the regions of Benjamin and Judah. And then finally, we'll see a section of Scripture from verse 36 to 58 that is organized um, according to sacerdotal function or priestly function within the worship of the house of God. We see offices of priests and musicians and gatekeepers and, and temple servants, that sort of thing. So looking to verse 2, what we're going to find here is the group of leaders that took the lead in the initial return from exile. Ezra 2.2 reads, These came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. Now, if you're wondering, did I say those words correctly? I promise you I did not. But I'm committed to not stuttering, so I'm going to say it wrong and just skip to the next one, okay? Um, what we have here is a list of leaders. There's actually 12 leaders. 11 are given in this verse, and then one more is taken from uh, chapter 1, verse 11. That's the name Sheshbazar. Now, there's some debate over the relationship between Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. Um, there was at one time the assumption that they were one and the same person, that Sheshbazar was simply the Babylonian name given to Zerubbabel. And th this is a possibility, and it's not without precedent. We can remember from the book of Daniel um, that Daniel was given the Babylonian name. Belteshazzar, very good. I have five people still awake. That is beautiful. Great. Um, and then his, his three compadres, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it works well for children's songs, so that's the, the names that we apply to them, that we remember them by. Um, but uh, these were simply their Babylonian names. Their Jewish names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So it's not without precedent that people in exile would take to themselves or be given to them names of, their conquering, of the conquering people. Um, but I think this assumption that uh, with regard to Zerubbabel being the same person as Sheshbazar is really rooted in the writings of the ancient historian Josephus. And most scholars today seem to think that these were two separate people. Now, why do I make such a big deal about that? Well, I do because there's a significance in Scripture in the number 12. And we have 11 names in chapter 2, verse 2. And this 12th name of Sheshbazar as a leader, he's going to be mentioned again in the book of Ezra, is, is important symbolically in the sense that God is, is continuing this pattern of 12s that he's established in the 12 tribes of Israel. The name Zerubbabel is an important name. Um, it literally means born in Babel or son of Babylon. And this is, uh, very interestingly, the same Zerubbabel that shows up in the New Testament genealogies of Christ. Um, 
very important that, that we draw these connections and, and realize that the providence of God is at work and the ultimate goal is his redemption in the person of Christ. So we see Zerubbabel leading people to pave the, uh, pave the way, to lay the actual stones uh, even that Christ would ultimately walk on one day as he walked the earth, taught in the temple, and came to bring about the kingdom of God. Other familiar names that we see in this list of leaders um, include Yeshua. Now, Yeshua is uh, simply a, uh, a way of saying what we would call Joshua, right? So Yeshua is an important name. Now, th this Joshua is not the one who succeeded Moses. Uh, that would be off by about a thousand years. This is the Joshua that we see uh, in, in places like Haggai and Zechariah as a high priest, um, other names that we see in this list that are significant, names such as Nehemiah and Mordecai, um, you'll recognize those names, but understand these are not the people that you think they are. These were common names. So, so the Nehemiah that we see is not the, the Nehemiah of the second half of the Ezra-Nehemiah combo. And Mordecai is not the one that we often as associate with Esther. So don't, don't make those uh, connect connections that are not necessarily there. Well, here's the fun part. We're going to continue with this text. We're going to work our way through these different um, sections of this, uh, of this list. We're going to see that uh, this next part, we're going to read verses uh, verse 2 through 19. This is going to be a listing of, uh, of the, the sons of these various uh, patriarchal heads, these families. Beginning in verse 20, we're going to see a switch, and we're going to see that these names are associated with locations or towns. And because this is the Word of God, we're going to read this in its context, and we're just going to appreciate, we're going to imagine together that whoever these names were, we have no way of knowing in many cases, these names were eternally there in the mind of God. Um, these, these names were very, very important to God, important enough for Him to list in the perpetual, inerrant word of God. So uh, let's read together beginning in verse 2. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Era, 775, the sons of Pehath Moab, of the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,812, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 945, the sons of Zechiah, 760, the sons of Benai, 642, the sons of Bebai, 623, the sons of Asgad, 1,222, the sons of Adonikam, 666, the sons of Bigvi, 2,056, the sons of Aden, 454, the sons of Ater of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Bezai, 323, the sons of Jorah, 112, the sons of Hashem, 223. The following names are organized by towns or regions. The sons of Gibar, 95, the sons of Bethlehem, 123, the men of Netophah, 56, the men of Anathoth, 128, the sons of Asmaveth, 42, the sons of Kiriath Aram, Chephira, and Beroth, 743, the sons of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel 
and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. How would you like to be called the other, the other one? Uh, Verse 31. Uh, Sorry, verse 32, the sons of Harem, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sinai, 3,630. Now, as we've worked through this, um, I, I, maybe you can hear pomp and circumstance playing in the, in the back of your mind as we progressively go through these names one after the other. But these were, the, these were those who, uh, the people who God had stirred in their heart and brought them to a place of obedience to follow him and return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So these are very significant names, even though to our ears, to our modern ears, maybe a lot of, not a lot of significance there. As we continue through this list of names, uh, we're now going to look at the clergy and the temple staff. Okay, so as we begin in Ezra 2, picking up in verse 36, we'll continue to read. The priests, the sons of Jedidiah of the house of Yeshua, 973. The sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites the sons of Yeshua and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, in all 139. From here we see the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashifa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Bissai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunium, the sons of Nephism, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa. These are all the temple servants, the different groupings of the, the, the temple servants that would have accompanied this uh, exile or this return from exile to the, to the land of promise. Continuing in 55, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jalah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth Hazabim, which ironically enough, that name means the keeper of gazelles. So this was the person who kept the giraffes at the zoo, I think. The sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And this concludes the listing that we are given here. Now, if you, if you will permit me just a minute, I'd like to take a second and just make some comments on each of these groups. Um, first of all, we saw in verses 36 through 39, um, the priests. Um, first Chronicles details for us actually 24 family groups appointed by David to serve as priests. They were all Levites. Okay, This would have been the part of the Levitical priesthood. In our text here today, we only actually see four 
which represents a significantly downsized priestly order as they are returning to the land of promise. In verse 40, we see a distinction between priests and Levites. The Levites would have been members of the tribe of Levi, but they were not descendants of Aaron. So therefore, they did not have the credentials necessary, and they were ineligible to be priests. Um, what the Levites typically did is they were appointed to assist the priests because they were of the Levitical tribe, um, but they did not have the descendant, uh, they were not descendants of Aaron. So they were then um, serving as assistants to the priest. Um, another group that we see in your text is the singers in verse 41. This is the choir. Again, these are also Levites, um, but they were, they were given to, uh, to sing, to bring praise to God, and that was their assigned duty. The gatekeepers in verse 42, these were given oversight of the facility of the house of God. They opened and closed the gates each day. They kept watch at night. They guarded the treasury. They looked after the furniture and the utensils of worship. Um, their, their job as gatekeepers was pretty extensive. Um, the next group that we see in verses 43 through 54 um, are not likely Levites. Uh, these were called the Netanim, or the temple servants. And they were given menial tasks, such as cutting wood, drawing water, um, things that would be of assistance to those who would actually be serving within the priesthood and, and the assistance of the priest, the Levites. Then we see Solomon's servants, 55 through 57. And it is unknown whether these were necessarily Levites or Gentiles or possibly a combination. Um, these were probably in the same servant class as temple servants because they're all, you'll notice, they're all numbered together. Um, I found as I studied through this that it was very, uh, very difficult to, to come up with any definitive statements about this list. Um, the commentaries all say it is likely blah, 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 or some say blah, blah, blah. No one wants to seem to, uh, seems to want to take the flag and plant it and say this or these group. Uh, it, it seems to be very hazy uh, in that regard. So that, that's why I speak with a little bit of uh, uncertainty uh, regarding some of the, these categories of people within this list. You'll notice uh, as you read for next week that the, the next week's section of text beginning in 59 um, will include a list of those who have apparently lost their birth certificates. So we have a group of, of people that are coming with, uh, with the returning exiles, and they don't seem to have any clear claim um, to, the, uh, to, to the, the, either the lineage or the region that they're going to. And the solution to this was to consult the Urim and the Thummim, okay, the Thummim. So next week, Evan will get to tell you about the Urim and the Thummim. Come back for that. It'll be, I'm, I'm sure, interesting. But remember, as I asked you before, I don't want us to allow the details and the unknowns of this lengthy passage to distract us from the larger issue of seeing God at work. So what I'd like for us to do now is take just a minute as we, we've worked through this text. Uh, there's not a lot to comment on outside of what I've said. Um, what I'd like for us to do is to ask ourselves a question. And to, I would like for us to think of three different answers to this question. The question is, what does this text reveal about God? Because while the, the details of what this text tells us about some of these people is sketchy, what this text tells us about God, I think, is pretty clear and can be of great encouragement to us. So first of all, the first thing I want us to, to answer in regard to this question, what does this text reveal about God? The first answer is that God's priority is his own worship and glory. 
Think about that for just a second. For those of you who love to take notes and make outlines, uh, this message has been a disaster for you so far. But beginning here, you can actually make three points and take some notes. So in answer to the question, what does this text reveal about God? The first answer should be that God's priority is his own worship and glory. Remember, the Jewish people found themselves in Babylonian exile in the first place because they did not obey and worship God as they were commanded. They failed to keep the first commandment, which we find in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But that's exactly what they did. They violated the first commandment, which demanded that worship be given exclusively to Yahweh. In the New Testament, we also see that God still seeks worshipers. John chapter 4, 23 tells us that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God's priority is worship. That is why He led the exiles out of Babylon, and that is why He pours out His mercy on lost souls today. Salvation is and has always been for the glory of God. We see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, go ahead and turn with me there. Um, this, this will be a, a, nice, a nice point for you to turn in Scripture and follow along with this. I want you to see this with your own eyes from the written Word of God. Ephesians 1, and we're going to start looking at this in verse 5. Ephesians 1 verse 5 reads, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we see here that we are predestined for adoption and that we have been saved according to the purpose of his will so that his glorious grace may be praised. Skipping ahead to verse 11 in the same chapter. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 states explicitly what Ezra 2 demonstrates, that just as God led the Jewish remnant out of exile to worship him, He leads sinners out of bondage today, causing them to praise and worship Him. God's priority is His own worship and glory. The second answer to the question of what does this text reveal about God, the second answer is this. God's grace has always been applied to a particular people. In Ezra 2, we see that God moved in the hearts of those who he would have returned to the homeland to rebuild his temple. Of course, God moved in the heart of Cyrus to release his people and call for this group to go up to Jerusalem. As we'll see next week, though, in next week's text, the total number that answered this initial call to return uh, to Israel was only about 50,000, less than 50,000, actually. This is out of an estimated number of 1 million in the Babylonian exile. So this means that the vast majority of of the children of Israel chose not to make the 900-mile journey and return to rebuild the temple. 
But God, in order that the promises of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, worked in the heart of Cyrus, and he worked in the heart of these exiles who would return and be obedient and faithful to worship him. God did not simply call his old covenant people to rebuild the temple and resume worship, only to leave the particulars of that to chance. God always ensures that his will comes about without fail. God leaves nothing to chance. Just as he specifically stirred the hearts of those listed in Ezra 2, today he is still stirring hearts. He does not just issue a call to repentance and then sit around today hoping that someone will respond. Just as he stirred the hearts of the people in Ezra 2, he stirs the hearts of people today to repentance and to salvation. The third answer to our question here, what does this text reveal about God? The third answer is God is always faithful to keep his promises. Because God has been faithful to his old covenant people and because he has gloriously fulfilled all things in Christ, believers today can rest in complete assurance that their salvation will never fail. At the heart of this truth of God being faithful to his covenant promises is the security that we have in our salvation. We can trust in the new covenant promises that guarantee our salvation because the God of the old covenant kept those promises and he will certainly keep these promises today. God has a perfect track record of covenant faithfulness. As we see God's perfection in keeping every detail he promised to the old covenant people, we can be sure that the promises of the new covenant, the better covenant, will also be upheld. I want you to turn to one more place in scripture today. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. As we consider this description of Christ entering once for all into the holy places, I want us to, to allow our minds for just a second to, to sort of take this in, that the same God who providentially brought this huge list of names out of exile back into the, to the promised land to, to fulfill the rebuilding of his temple, just as he brought all of that to, to pass, he also fulfilled the substance of what those signs were pointing to in the person of Christ. The, the writer of Hebrews lays this out for us in chapter 9. Beginning in verse 11, we read that, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, listen to this, once for all into the holy places, not by the means of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So I want us to hold both of these things in our mind. God upheld the, uh, the promises of the old covenant. He brought his people, as was prophesied by Jeremiah, he brought his people out of exile. He returned them to build a temple, to worship, to glorify him, as was his priority. But all of this was merely a shadow. It was merely a, a pointing to a much greater fulfillment that we would find in Jesus Christ. 
as recipients of the promises of the new covenant, we should take great comfort, great encouragement from the fact that God always fulfills his covenant promises. So as we examine the, the text of Ezra 2, and we see with great clarity that God always keeps his promises, this shows us that our place in the new covenant is guaranteed. It's guaranteed not by the blood of bulls and goats, but it's guaranteed by the blood of Christ. It's guaranteed by the faithfulness of the character of God. So today, as we take communion in just a little bit, I'd ask you to, to remember this, to consider that the blood of the new covenant is Jesus, that he is the one who made himself the sacrifice and the propitiation for sin, so that our standing before God would be made sure and, and certain. Well, a couple of things uh, by way of conclusion here. Um, first of all, I hope that we see that this long list of names in Ezra 2, maybe it was painful to read, um, and you're saying painful to read, it was really painful to listen to. Well, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. But what I hope that we can see is that this is not just some trivial section in some ancient religious writing. I hope that we see there's a significance to the specificity with which God lists the people that have been called for his purpose. It is a testimony to the unyielding faithfulness of God, teaching us three important things about his character. Just a, a quick review for you note takers. It teaches us that God's priority is his own worship and glory. It teaches us that God's grace is always poured out in a specific manner in order to redeem a particular people. And it teaches us that God's provision and salvation is eternally reliable, a fact that should give us great comfort. Secondly, while this list of names in Ezra 2 might not seem particularly relevant to us, there is a list of eternal significance that we should all consider. That is the list of the names found in the Lamb's Book of Life. So consider for just a second that, that while the, 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 uh, the Old Covenant people of God listed in this, in this list in Ezra 2, many of them have been lost to history, there is a list that will never be lost. It's a list that was written prior to the foundation of the world. And it's this Lamb's book of life. And anyone who is found faithful, anyone who has been granted belief and repentance, uh, faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, their name is eternally written there. And those names will never be lost to history. Those names will never be forgotten. Those names will never uh, be allowed to fade from memory because they are held eternally in the mind of God. I'd like to read just a quick section um, from Revelation 20. You don't have to turn there, but let's conclude with this passage today. Beginning in Revelation 20, verse 11, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the list of names that we should be aware of is this list called the Lamb's Book of Life. My question to you today, is your name written in that book? 
If you say yes, the question is, on what basis do you say that? If you believe your name is there because you're a good person, if you believe your name is there because you come to church, if you believe that your name is there because you generally do more good than bad, you are sorely mistaken, and your name is not there. The only way we can claim a place in the Lamb's Book of Life is by virtue of what Christ has done, by faith and trust in Him alone. So praise God today for the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Praise God that that lamb has a book containing a list of names of his saints. And praise God for the assurance that flows from his covenant faithfulness. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, that even in the difficulties, uh, you have revealed yourself in your word. Uh, You have demonstrated through your covenant faithfulness that you are a God that, that sees all, that knows all, that is in control of all. Father, furthermore, you are a God who has granted salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are thankful and we are grateful for that. Lord, we praise you for your work of salvation. We thank you for the example that we see with your leading the old covenant people, with your delivering them from exile. And Lord, we thank you that today you deliver sinners uh, from the, uh, the slavery of sin, that you deliver us from the bondage of our own wickedness by the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for his blood, and we pray this in his name. Amen.